Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to those uh, fathers, grandfathers here, maybe fathers to be in the future. Uh, maybe you're not even married yet, uh, but you may be a father someday. So happy Father's Day to you. So I want to make one comment on the video. That was really nice, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that probably isn't everybody's experience. So hopefully so. Hopefully uh, uh, you have a good relationship with your father and you're, you have been and are a good father and a grandfather, but we need to get street level and, as I said, acknowledge that that's not everybody's experience. So uh, some people have uh, fathers uh, they rarely talk to and they've made maybe vocally or just internally, they've made this vow that I will never be like my father. I just won't. And then when it comes to the idea of God as Father, that could be a tough pill to swallow. So if that's you today, uh, we understand. Uh, we get it. We get it to the degree that Radiant Church has several ministries that could help you with that. If you're interested in help, we've got, of course, New Life Counseling. We've got our Wellsprings of Ministry, free, uh, Wellsprings of Freedom Ministry. We've got some individual mentors. We've got some small groups and leaders and some pastors, all kinds of resources if that's your experience. But uh, hey, if you are one of the people who has a great relationship, a great experience with fatherhood, and you are currently uh, fathering well, happy Father's Day. Congratulations. Keep it up. So we've got some uh, good, strong men at Radiant Church. That's one of the things I like about this place. And when I say good, strong men, I don't mean the way the world defines good, strong men. I mean men who will pray with their families, who will look at God's Word for direction, for counsel, and when they blow it, and we do, when they blow it, they'll say, you know what, I, I screwed up. I said this. I shouldn't have said this. I should have done this instead of that. Will you forgive me, and let's move on. So uh, you're in good company today. Well, we are going to look at Titus chapter 2 today, Titus chapter 2 as we continue our series in the book of Titus, uh, but to set the scene, to kind of lay a couple layers of foundation, we need to go back to Matthew chapter 5. So we'll start with Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus says this to the disciples. He tells them that they're the salt of the earth, and by extension, we're the salt of the earth. And when we hear that, of course, we get the meaning instantly. We, we understand what that means. But as with most things, probably almost everything Jesus said or Paul said in the Bible, if you lift the lid, there's something a little deeper, a little uh, heavier implication, a little more subtle implication underground. And so let's take a look at that for just a second because it has to do with the foundation for what Paul says to Titus about the people and the believers in Crete. Now, zero in on this phrase, if uh, if the salt loses its saltiness. Zero in on that. There's a specific Greek, one Greek word used for that phrase, and normally we wouldn't bother you with the word, just the meaning of it, but I am going to tell you the, the, the pronunciation of the word because there's an English equivalent that as soon as I say the word, you might get it. But the word is morhino. The Greek word for the salt loses its saltiness is morhino. What that means is this. It has the implication of foolishness. But the English equivalent of that, if you haven't gotten there yet, is the word moron. Yeah. Now, that's not a nice thing to say to people. Matter of fact, I can tell you from experience that if you say that, for instance, at your son's high school baseball game, if you say that to the umpire, they'll invite you to leave. They'll stop the game until you leave. 
Now, I'd love to tell you that that instance was, you know, way before I knew the Lord. I wasn't even in ministry. I'd known the Lord for many years. I was executive director at Teen Challenging, Colfax, where everybody knows everybody, and they knew who I was. And the umpire says, yeah, we're done until this guy leaves. So don't call somebody a moron, it, you know. <laughs> Fortunately, I got to come back the next night, happened to be the same umpire, apologize, go into the dugout before the game, go, hey, guys, I blew. They're a bunch of high school kids. They thought it was hilarious, right? Uh, but, hey, no, uh, I was out of line. So, anyway, so, yeah, don't call somebody a moron. But here's what Paul's saying uh, to uh, Titus. He's saying that salt that's lost its flavor is foolish or moronic, but salt that retains its flavor is wise. Salt that retains its flavor is wise. Jesus continues by telling them that, that uh, we should, our lives should be the light of the world. You know, nobody lights a lamp and then hides it away. They put it out there so it can light up everything, so everybody can see it. Common practice is to take a little pinch of salt in the day, put, put a little pinch of salt on the wick of that lamp to increase its brightness. So it's a little more radiant, if you will. So the salt of wisdom makes our light shine brighter. The salt of wisdom in your life causes you and I to shine brighter. That's the first level of foundation for Titus chapter 2. The second level is this. We actually have to go back to Titus chapter 1. And here's a quick summary of what Paul tells uh, Titus about the people in Crete. So I just highlighted the words so they stand out for you. You can read that for yourself. Sound like lovely people, don't they? Um, but that reminds me of something. When I was studying this and kind of preparing this, it reminded me just something came to my mind. There was a time when I experienced this when I took my wife to Teen Challenge to be done with her. And by the time you're done with Teen Challenge or you're done with that, I'll be divorced. We'll be divorced. I'll be long gone. I'll be off with somebody else. And this is awesome. And when I got there, they had on this bookshelf, they had this in this library, they had this little lineup of books of the living Bible, these little paperback Bible, and they're all shrink-wrapped. And I don't know what drew me to that other than OCD, but I was just so impressed that somebody took the time to line those up. And I said, for whatever reason, I said, could I have one of those? Yeah, sure. I took it, got home, drove home several hours later, and I un unwrapped this Bible, and I just kind of flip it open somewhere just to see, yeah, what's, what, did I, what did I take here? Here's what I read, Jeremiah chapter 4. This is from the Living Bible, so it's a little different than you might be used to. It says, My people are dull, witless children who have no understanding. Well, it gets better from there. <laughs> They're smart enough at doing wrong, but for doing right, they have no talent, none at all. And have you ever opened... God's Word and started reading, and like um, figuratively, this hand came up and kind of slapped you upside the head. That's exactly what they, and when I read that, completely angry, completely rebellious, completely uh, adulterous lifestyle, getting rid of my wife and our daughter, who was three at the time. Um, when I read that, I said, alone, alone to me, I said, that's me. That I'm, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. That is exactly yeah, that's me. I can think of a hundred ways to cheat and sleep with somebody else and get what I want and do this or that and try to cover it up. Sometimes when it comes to doing the right, truly the right thing, it's like, man, I got to really put some brain power to this to come up with a way to do what's right. That might be an accurate picture of what Paul is telling Titus here about these folks. But it's not just these people in Crete. These are Christians too. 
These are Christians on the Isle of Crete living like this. And so we look a little deeper at what they're like. We've got sexual promiscuity. We've got uh, women sleeping around, men sleeping around. The men are known as, uh, well, I think Jason mentioned this week one, the men were mercenaries. At the mercenary level, you go to battle not because you believe in the cause for the war. You go because, man, it's a good way to make money. And you know what? It's kind of recreational to go out and fight people and hurt them and kill them, right? So, you know, why not? So the men were violent. The women had this phrase that kind of attached to themselves called the new Roman woman. A new Roman woman is more uh, wise and more liberated than her Greek counterpart. And so they could sleep around because they were liberated and they were wiser and they were more learned. They were just better than those, those Greek women. They exploited all this freedom to the detriment of their uh, husbands and their families. And all this behavior trickles down to the kids. And on top of that, you've got false teaching, specifically uh, that you must be circumcised to be saved. So if you picture Crete, you can kind of picture a, a frame of reference we might get. It might be kind of a, a first century Wild West. You know, you got these Yukon gold rushers and these Montana militiamen. You got these, all these lone rangers running around, independent spirits, and everybody's just kind of doing, as the Bible says, what's wise in their own eyes. Not unlike, you know, what's happening today. And so that's the Isle of Crete. Everybody just does what they want. One of the Greek historians, Polybius, said this. He said, it would be impossible to find, except in some rare instances, personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. In other words, it might be out there, but you're going to have to scour around for it to find people worse off than this. So this is a dire situation. And again, some of these people are believers, have made a profession of faith in Christ, but they're beginning to look and live like the people around them. But God called believers to be different, to stand out, uh, to not follow the crowd, uh, to not uh, just try to fit in, to blend in. He called us to be different. We're to be in the world and not of it. So there's a couple layers of foundation. That brings us to Titus chapter 2, and it starts with this. Paul says, um, in light of all that that I just said in chapter 1, Titus, in all that, light of all that, you, however, must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. And I like the way the New Living Testament says that. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Now, I'm not a theologian or anything, but the reason I like that is I feel like it zeroes in a little bit more, a little more refined uh, what Paul's trying to say, uh, and it's that I'm going to teach you how to live your faith, not just what to believe, but how to live that belief out. And it's a great reminder as we uh, connect with our ones as part of our REACH initiative, as we connect with the ones we've identified, uh, with maybe those we haven't identified yet but are yet to come. As we connect with those people, they're seeing, they're observing what we do, what we say, what we don't do, what we don't say. And so uh, our, it's incumbent on us to be purposeful about connecting with people, but also to make sure that we're demonstrating what we believe. And we'll talk about that a little more in just a, a second. But that's what people see is how we live. Paul says this, follow my example as I follow Christ. So for our ones, for the culture, I think, I think it's biblical that people ought to see something in us that they want to follow along. I love Exodus chapter 4. It's not a person. 
uh, but it's Moses, but not another, well, it is another person, it's God. There's this bush that's burning, but it's not consumed, and Moses cannot figure that thing out. Finally, he is compelled, he says, this is the living Bible, okay? I have to get off my butt and go see what is with that bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. I, I, I'm compelled. I have to see what's going on here. And when he does that, God begins to speak to him, and you know the rest of the story. Our lives should be burning in such a way that people are compelled. They might think you're weird, and not only get too close, but I have to know, what's your deal? Or they might be totally compelled, like, I want what you have. I don't know what it is, but I like, I like what I see. What is your deal? People should be compelled. But the Cretans, people in Crete, the gospel probably wasn't attractive in any way, shape, or form because as they look around at the Christians and they make an assessment and see this is how we live, this is how the Christians live, there's no difference. So why would I surrender to Christ? Why would I follow him? They they live just like I do. They say the same kinds of things that I do. So this right living that we're talking about and that Paul's uh, teaching is uh, a product of sound teaching. In other words, right teaching and right living go hand in hand. Right teaching and right living go hand in hand. They complement one another. So here's a fill-in for you. Right believing never excuses wrong living, and right living is evidence of right believing. Here's the way James says it. I like the way James says it. You've heard this before. Faith if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Show me, let me see, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you, I'll let you see, my faith by what I've been taught. So think about your life for just a second. Think about a set of scales. And over here, you've got all the things you've been taught about the Lord, uh, even uh, just common sense things about life, about dealing with people, about dealing with just, yeah, just life. But all the people, the sermons you've heard and the people who've poured into you and prayed for you and mentored you, and over here you've got the way you live, what what is evident to other people. They don't see this. They see this. Is there a relative balance there? Now, honestly, I probably don't know anybody who's totally balanced. I don't even know if that's possible. But, I mean, is there a relative balance there? Or is it this? I'll exaggerate to make the point. Are your beliefs, I believe all these things very highly, but the way I display them is clear down here. There's very little evidence of that. Where are you on that? We'll come back to the idea of balance uh, toward the end here in just just a couple minutes. So is there relative uh, balance in your life? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that relationship with Jesus should produce something in us, but it should also produce a different kind of family different kind of household. So when people look at our families, there should be something that stands out about us. Not perfection by a long shot, but just something, even when we make mistakes, there's something different about the way we correct those things, the way we, we handle those things. Older men and older women should be models of integrity, self-control, the women should, the older women should reject this whole idea of a new Roman woman, you know, this independent, liberated Greek kind of thing. Men turn aside from greed and violence. They put their hands and their minds to becoming productive. But here's one thing they did notice that the people in Crete did notice about the Christians. In the ancient world, they noticed that they were different in this one thing. And as that, when they gathered together for worship, they'd have a slave owner 
and the slave worshiping together. As a matter of fact, you might well have a slave up here as an elder making, saying something, and his owner is down there. Now, Paul's certainly not, you know, uh, uh, authorizing slavery and owning other people. But in that culture, there was, it was a, kind of a strange dynamic, but in a good way. And so it wasn't a license for these slaves to disrespect their master or to rebel, but they understood that God called them to be elders, and then when they went back home, their position was to serve uh, their master. Oh, there's a new kind of uh, family, a new kind of lifestyle has a ripple effect as it just waters down, it trickles down to the younger generation and to the kids and the grandkids, maybe the nieces and the nephews. And so if you're a, a younger father here, you still have kids at home, maybe your grandfather with, with the little ones who you have influence in their lives. Here's a couple good things to trickle down into them. Paul says this in Romans 16, 19. He says, I want you to be innocent of evil and wise about good. I want you to be innocent of evil and wise about good. And when I was a brand new believer at 34 years old, when our kids, thank God, when our kids were very, very, very small, and I ran into that verse, and I told Diana, I said, I think this is the prayer for our family. Let our kids uh, be innocent of evil and wise about good. And that became somewhat of a filter that we would pass decisions through. So here's a, an activity with a bunch of kids who maybe we don't know all that well. Lord, is this going to help contribute to innocence of evil, or is it going to make them wise about good? Uh, there was a particular homeschool thing that we got involved in, and, and Lord, that was the same prayer all the way through. So that'd be a good prayer for the next generation. Here's another one for the next generation. Psalm 144, 12. Let our sons and their youth be as grown-up plants, and our daughters as a pillar, corner pillar, fashioned for a palace. God, I pray that our sons and their youth would be grown-up plants, that, that even from a young age, they would be wise beyond their years that they wouldn't have worldly wisdom, they would have godly wisdom, even as a, a, a little boy, that they would be that Psalm 1 type person who's firmly planted by streams of living water and it, they yield their fruit in season. Whatever they do, they prosper. Make that be our boys, our sons, our grandsons. Maturity beyond their years that they can't explain, I can't explain, don't need to explain it, and just know that it's, it's real. Make that our boys. And make our daughters this corner pillar fashioned for a palace. Think Greek or Roman architecture based upon, you know, use of columns. And those columns are carved and they're ornate. Now go to the corner ones. The corner columns are a little more ornate. They usually have a little more carving, a little more decoration to them. They're a little more attractive. You're drawn to those a little bit more. But they also serve an important function. They bear up under more weight because they're the corner piece. They hold a part of the roof that is, is jutting out from everything else. Lord, let our daughters be a corner pillar fashioned for a palace. Let them be the kind of women, maybe they be the kind of girls, the kind of women who bear up under more weight. When others are fading away, when others are, are growing tired and growing weary and running out of steam, may our daughters be the ones who persevere because of your spirit in them. May they be uh, beautiful, not just physically, but in their spirit, that people are just drawn to their beauty somehow, regardless of what they look like on the outside. So when you think about fathering, parenting the next generation, a new kind of family, a new kind of household 
as opposed to the people in Crete. There's a couple good prayers for you uh, to think about, a couple things to, to ponder. So one way this new life, only one way this new life is possible, this different kind of family, and it does involve some decisions, for sure, always has, always will, but it's not by willpower. Through Zechariah, God says, not by might, not by power, but it's by his spirit, says the Lord. It's possible because of this. Here's what Paul tells Titus, verse 11. It's possible because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's how it's possible for our families to live and look different than the culture. It's because of the grace of God. Now, some might say, and hopefully you're one who can say this today, but I've never lived that Cretan kind of lifestyle. Our family is, is we're, we're not like that. Those things that Paul said about the Cretans, those, those wouldn't really apply to us. Never cheated on anybody, never ripped anybody off, never used drugs or chemicals, never, you know, took things that didn't belong to me. And I say to that, congratulate, praise God, you have not missed a thing. Trust me, you have not missed a thing. Here's a reality those of us who have had that experience have been saved by the same power that saved you from ever stepping into that. In other words, you never started that because of the Spirit in your life. We were saved from it because of the Spirit in our life. It's one Spirit. Here, here's another way of putting it. We're all on life support. We're all on life support. In Him we live, we move, we have our being. Outside of life with him, we suck air for 70 or 80 or 90 years, and then whatever happens, we're done. According to Arnold Schwarzenegger this couple, last couple weeks, it's over, right? This is it. Live it up. But that's not right. That's not right. About 750 years before Christ, um, God goes out of his way to tell people what all means. Who does all include? Through uh, uh, Joel, he tells us that all people means all, our sons, our daughters, our old men, our young women, our servants. That pretty much sums up everything. And you fast forward 750 plus years, and Titus, Paul's telling Titus who all includes, our older men, our older women, our younger women, our slaves. All means all, because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the Spirit's for all. And if we look at the role of grace, you know, grace has a mission statement much like Radiant Church, much like uh, Nike or Apple or any company, any entity you can think of. They all have a mission statement, a bullseye hanging on the wall where you can know this is what they're about and this is where they're going, these are their values. Grace has a mission statement too. The mission statement of grace is that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what grace is for. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I like that. You know what I like better than no, though? I like yes. I mean, wouldn't you rather say yes? Isn't it easier to say yes than it is to say no? Because no involves, okay, now I've got to maybe uh, withhold some things or do some things that I don't want to. It's easier to say yes. Although if you're two years old, it's easier to say no. But grace teaches us those things. In other words, it teaches us to guard our relationships. It teaches us to guard our affections, the affections of our heart. 
teaches us to uh, guard what we give ourselves to, our time and our energy uh, and our resources. But there's even better news that Paul is saying here to Titus. There's even better news than grace teaches us to say no because when it comes to doing right, doing things God's way, you don't have to white-knuckle it. In other words, you and I can say no to ungodliness, but sometimes that becomes a white-knuckling exercise, like, I'm going to bear down. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be like that. I'm just going to, mm, that's effort. That, that's a lot of work, and that's not God's way. God has a better way. Doing right is not something that you and I labor through, but our heart's just never really in it. Because if you're like me, if your heart's not in it, you probably won't do it for very long. So doing the right thing for your family is not something you labor through without your heart in it. It's better than that. That's a lie from hell. Go ahead to that next slide if you would. Yeah. Here's just seven real quick uh, verses that tell us that that's a lie. Because the truth is God can change your heart can transform your heart and your mind. You could look up literally hundreds more of scriptures like this to show us, to demonstrate that God's intent is to transform our hearts, transform our minds, so we don't have to white-knuckle it. We can live with a transformed heart and a transformed mind. So just as we can learn, and we do learn from the culture to imitate the ways of other people, we can learn and even become eager and passionate to do what's right. I don't have to labor through doing what's right. God's Spirit in me, as I live surrendered to Him, enables me to want to do what's right. Think about Jeremiah chapter 4. You're creative about doing what's wrong. You can start to become creative about doing the right things, which is kind of fun. Creative about how I can bless somebody or what I can do in this situation or what I should do with these talents and gifts that God has, has uh, entrusted me with. It all happens because of God's grace. And finally, here's verse uh, 30. Paul says, In every way they'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And that is the entire point of the message today. In every way the teaching about God our Savior will be attractive to other people. Be attractive. The proving ground for the gospel begins in you and in your family. That's what people see. That's what they experience. Christianity is compelling when lives are changed. We had a guy come to Teen Challenge many years ago. His dad was, I don't know, he's a pastor or something like that. Anyway, he learned in his youth, he learned 1,500 uh, Bible pa- And he, he had them memorized. And he could tell them to you, too. You know why he's in Teen Challenge? He's in Teen Challenge because uh, he's from Chicago. Uh, he's in Teen Challenge because... Um, he liked to steal other people's property and then go out and sell drugs on the side, cocaine in his case, for years and years and years. But he could still memorize. Isn't that interesting? They were wired into his brain. He could still memorize them. So nobody was drawn to that. Hey, Lloyd, quote us a verse. Who cares? Nobody cares about that. But when Lloyd started to surrender to Jesus and his life began to be different and there's something compelling about him, people would come to the church and say, What's the deal with this Lloyd guy, man? There's something different about him. He's, he's, he's transforming. He's changing. That's what people are drawn to. I don't think I ever heard anybody say, hey, Lloyd, quote me a verse. 
Who cares? Yeah, but Lloyd, what's going on in your heart? You're different. Well, I invite the worship team to come here uh, as I wrap up. So Ben and I were talking about this message earlier in the week. He asked me how, um, how it was going, what I was thinking about, what I was uh, going to be saying today. And, and so I asked him a question. I said, so hey, you look out in the culture. You've been a youth pastor, worked with, with youth for, uh, and families for, for several years now. You look out there, what do you see about families and Christian families? And we talked about several things, but the bottom line, he said, was I guess if, if I just had to summarize everything, I'd say it's just out of balance. Remember I mentioned it being out of balance earlier? He said, just be out of balance. And when he said that, I pictured, had a picture in my head of something. So as soon as he left, I went upstairs and I got on a computer and I got on YouTube and I uh, looked for uh, out of balance washing machine. You ever had a washing machine that was out of balance? Yeah, it's just kind of annoying. But it's, and sometimes it's real annoying because maybe the, the drain hose comes out and now you got a mess. But here's a video that I found. This isn't just annoying, this is devastating. Somebody took a washing machine, put it outside. This is like an 11 minute video. Put this washing machine out in the yard and they put a brick in it, something that you ought not to put in a washing machine. And they start that thing up and, you know, it starts rocking. And pretty soon you wait a couple minutes and this thing is, it's going nuts. All of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. The black panel flies off this thing. Wait another 30 seconds or 60 seconds, and the side panels start shaking, and they come apart, and the top panel, the door flies open. And then the electronic panel up front with all the buttons and that, that thing comes flying off, and pretty soon it's just like this frame with this drum spinning, and then the frame just disintegrates. And this thing comes alive. It's crazy. It's this, this drum connected to an electrical cord, and it's bouncing all over the yard. It's just got a life of its own. And there's these guys, you know, they're, yeah, I'm in Ankeny. They're probably from east side of Des Moines. They're going, uh, no. <laughs> there's these guys, they're going, oh, dude, you know, they're getting out of the way and everything. But the point is, there was something in that washing machine that didn't belong there. And it started out just rumbling, just kind of, hey, maybe we should correct this thing. But no, they let it go longer and longer and longer, and the thing disintegrated. is worthless for anything. Is there something in our lives, is there something in our families, in our family structure, is there something that doesn't belong there? And maybe, if so, maybe you're at the point where there's just, just kind of a rocking. It's just, you know, it's a little annoying, but it's okay. It's not devastating to us. Maybe you're way at the end where it is and has been devastating. The panels have flown off and the electronic panels laying in the yard somewhere and just it's like we don't know what to do. Wherever you are uh, in that timeline, God wants to heal that, correct that, take care of that, resolve that. Maybe your family dynamics feel like that. Maybe you feel you can uh, relate to the believers in Crete and uh, show that list of the way that the, the believers in Crete were. You know, kind of Yukon, wild mountain man, gold rusher, lone ranger, independent spirit. Just got that about you or you got that about your family and that's the way things are. There's one way to deal with all that. And I just warn you, you're not going to like this one way because it's not a very popular notion. Um, it does happen to be God's notion. And it's a biblical notion, but the one way to deal with that is a simple word. It's to repent. 
Repentance is simply, God, I, my family, we're going this way, and the panels are starting to fly off, and things are coming loose and unplugged, and we're going to stop right now, and we're going to go that way, that way being toward him. And that starts by just making a decision that that's what's going to happen. Again, you can't white-knuckle that. Well, you can, but you won't do it over the long haul. But God, we're not only going to go that way, stop going that way, and start going this way. We, are, we acknowledge the only way that's going to be possible is by your grace and your spirit in us.